Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. So today I'd like to take a look to start out with the Torah portion, which is Baha Alocha. You know, the connection here is going to be the, the blessing on the tribe of Asher is oil. And their oil was the most highly sought after for the temple services. There's something special about Asher's oil. So we'll, we'll take a preliminary look at Asher's oil today. And then next week, I'll show you a really interesting parallel between the Proverbs 31 woman and the blessings on the tribes. But first, I want to establish again what I went into a little bit last week. And it is trying to help us grow up a little bit in the way that we read the word so that, you know, the way you start out learning something is you learn smaller blocks, you learn the, the elements and so forth. You could, you could never understand, say, a chemical if you didn't start out in chemistry, learning the, the elements and what makes up those chemicals and how those things work. And so similar with the Torah, you have to learn the fundamentals first, but as you go through it year after year after year, going through the Torah cycles, you'll realize that, yeah, you are becoming a chemist, so to speak, in the Torah, because now you're able to accumulate several layers of understanding and then begin to assemble them together to make something exciting and new. And maybe it turns colors and foams up in the laboratory. I don't know. But we definitely find new things in the Torah as we study. And so one of the things that we find out is that even though we might learn things in separate elements, like seven separate feasts, they're actually one feast. They're they're all it's seven parts of the same thing. If we look at the seven spirits of Adonai in the book of Isaiah, well, it's one Holy Spirit. So it's seven elements of the same thing. And once we get used to that idea, then we don't have to get as locked in when, you know, we're all fascinated by prophecy. And sometimes we want to say, well, you know, you sure he fulfilled these prophecies, but he hasn't fulfilled those yet. That's a little bit of a mistake. Once we move past learning these little packets of information and we start to assimilate the bigger picture, we'll realize that, you know what, maybe he did fulfill this feast, but maybe he fulfilled that one too. Maybe I didn't recognize it because I wasn't looking for it. And maybe he'll fulfill it again and again and again. That's how prophecy works. It works in cycles, a never-ending cycle. And so we want to take another look. We want to go back and regather some things from last week, put those things together, and then get ready for next week. But I want to show you this. We can call it a mystery. It's not that mysterious. It doesn't take a big brain to figure out the parallels between the blessings on the 12 tribes, which are really 12 aspects of the same thing, just like our, our seven branch menorah, our seven feasts, 12 aspects of the same thing, but yet each tribe will characterize particular blessings. We'll see the parallel between the blessings on those 12 sons and then the blessings of the Proverbs 31 woman. And it's, it's pretty incredible once you see it. But I want to I'm going to set the stage this week with some parallels first. So Baha Alocha, it means in fact it's if you check five different translations of the Bible, you might get five different answers as to what that 
word means. And it is a compound word. So we're really safe if we say it means in your going up, because we always look for that, that verb form. We always look for that shoresh, the root of the verb. But in this case, the verb has been turned into a noun. So it's not when you go up as a verb, it's in your going up. It's been turned into a noun. They, there's a construct there. And so you, you've got a preposition, you've got a determiner, you've got a pronominal suffix. And so you have to smush all these things together and you come up with something like in your going up, in your mounting up, when you raise up, because the bait as the preposition is a multifunction preposition. And so you, you just have to kind of figure it out from the context of what exactly it's talking about. We'll also want to take a, a quick look at Psalm 68, which is the Psalm of the Week, and see a, an illustration of this incredible pattern. We'll point it out again, like I said, between the tribes and the Proverbs 31 woman, but there's other parallels in scripture that if you're not really looking for them, you may not find them. You may just stumble into them sometimes. And so that'll help. And uh, if you want to know the, the fuller story of Beha Alokha, I found out years ago, uh, as I was putting material together for a Becky book that I wrote called 50,000 50, Degrees and Cloudy, A Better Resurrection, I realized that, especially as you go to the rabbinic sources, there are three separate Torah portions that comprise the bulk of understanding and expectation of the resurrection. One of those is this week's Torah portion, Beha Alokha. It's extremely prophetic in terms of describing the gathering into the clouds of glory and the resurrection and the clouds of glory. And so if you want the longer version of that, uh, you can you can find the book on our website. You can find it on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, anywhere. You can find it anywhere. But it's a, it was a fascinating study for me because it was one of those things. I wish somebody had started explaining it to me when I was a lot younger when I was a kid, because you know, when you're a kid, you're going to see people die. Well, hopefully not literally see them die, but people, you know, will die. And that's when you start asking questions about death. And it doesn't have to be that mysterious if we just teach children what's in the word. And Baha Alokha is one of those key uh, Torah portions, because what you do, you know, each Torah portion is going to have a name based on the introductory words to that Torah portion. So in Baha Aloha, in your going up, and the context of that is to light the menorah. If we add to that another core portion, which is rich in resurrection language, which is kitisa. Kitisa means when you elevate. So very similar in your going up when you elevate. And then the third one with strong resurrection overtones and themes is going to be pekude. And it means accounting or reckoning, which is exactly what happens at the Feast of Trumpets. It's a judgment day. It's a, it's a reckoning day. So you put those three Torah portions together that comprise the book of understanding about what happens at the resurrection, string them together. And what you get is, and you're going up when you elevate at the accounting or the reckoning. And so it's a message within a message. It's not just an isolated, discrete Torah portion, you can put it with similar Torah portions, and it's actually sending you a message about, hey, you read these Torah portions right here, you'll understand a lot about the resurrection of the dead and Judgment Day. So that's just a little tip. And so remember, you know, when you see this uh, graphic, 
of the seven branch menorah. It just shows you different layers that you can impose onto the seven branch menorah. The seven days of creation, that's where we start in workbook one. And then we overlay that. We go to the seven spirits of Adonai, each one moving in a particular way on a particular day of creation. And then we overlay the seven feasts and each spirit of Adonai moving in a specific way on a a high Sabbath of these feasts. And then just for fun and games, we like to add in workbook one, the seven uh, assemblies of Revelation and show you those seven assemblies really are representative of the seven feasts that you just got through studying. There's specific bywords, themes, language, and so forth. And that helps embed, you know, as we're learning these discrete units of understanding, these discrete units of information, it's showing you like, okay, don't shut down. Don't close that box yet. Don't close it. Don't close it. We're going to put something else in your box to your seven days of creation. We're going to put the seven spirits of Adonai in your box. And then we're going to put the seven feasts in your box. And then we're going to show you how the seven assemblies are those seven feasts in your box. And the box keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's when you know something starts changing in your mind and you say, you know what? I might be learning in small units of understanding. It doesn't mean that they'll stay small if I keep studying. So what we're going to do, we're going to review Judah's blessing from last week. And then we want to compare it to Asher's blessing of oil. And in Hebrew, you know, we say Asher. Yeah. You've heard me call one of my dogs like Asher, like most likely get off of me, Asher. He's huge. Uh, But in Hebrew, it's Asher, Asher. And it's a word that pops up a lot in Hebrew because it, it has more than one meaning to it. It's one of those words like in English, that. Think how often the word that is used. Well, Asher functions kind of like that literally. But it can also mean like happy, joyful, rich, fortunate. Okay, And the tribe of Asher's oil was highly sought after for the temple service because the tribal territory of Asher, there was extremely productive olive trees and extremely high quality fruits from those olive trees. So oil was needed for a lot of things in the temple, not just for the menorah, not just for the, you know, the lighting of the menorah, but um, there was anointings that had to happen. There was bread that had to be baked and it was a rich bread. And if you're going to make a rich bread, then you're going to have to have oil for it. You know, the bread of the faces, it was a rich bread. It, it wasn't, you know, like the, the unleavened bread, a little bit different. So um, if you think of the two loaves, the two leavened loaves that were brought at Shavuot, that you would need rich oil for rich bread. It had a specific meaning attached to it. So if we want to understand that, then let's go back to Shavuot again, and let's review our growth process that we learned from deciphering what the, the Feast of Shavuot is all about. It's the Feast of Weeks. And of course, we know it rests right smack dab in the middle of the menorah. It's number four, no matter which side you start from. Well, because it's the axis of the menorah, everything else that's in the menorah will somehow be contained in that axis. The Passover week will somehow be contained within that axis. The fall feasts will somehow be contained within that axis of Shavuot. So we're not surprised that you've got a week-long 
feast of unleavened bread, and you've got a week-long feast of Sukkot, because Shavuot, which is the axis, is the Feast of Weeks. So when you see Shavuot, weeks, and it's informing you, I'm going to see a week over here, and I'm going to see a week over here. It's, it's pretty simple. It's not that hard. Just once you realize it's there, you'll realize how simple it's been the whole time. But Shavuot, remember we learned last week, it was an appointed time where we grow from milk to solid food. Every year we start these cycles anew. There's, there's different starting and stopping points in the year for particular principles. But one of the principles of the, the span of the seven feasts is that Shavuot brings us once again each year to the mountain of the covenant. It brings us once again to Mount Sinai. And it's traditional to eat dairy products on the feast of Shavuot because that's different than being saved. Being saved from death, being saved from Egypt, that's one thing. But you come out as a nursing child. Uh, even Jacob, remember when he came back into the land, he told Esau, I can't follow you. I have to go with the pace of the nursing children. So there's a, a stage of our growth when we are nursing children. But when he brings us to Shavuot each year, we should be a change more mature. And we have to be willing when we arrive at that mountain to do and to hear, to receive the word of Moses and Yeshua. And it's the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, that's going to enable us in this process. We see that in Acts chapter 2. That was the intention all along, that it wouldn't be a dead letter, that the Torah, this covenant, would become a living word. We, we don't ever want to settle for anything less. And yet, the Corinthians are told in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, Paul writes and he says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. You, you've had this experience. The Holy Spirit is available to mature you. He says, but I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. See, it has to be received. You know, mom can stick Cheerios in your, your mouth all day long, but if you keep spitting the Cheerios out, then most likely you're going to spit out the meat too, because you're not yet able to receive it. And he says, indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Just plain old men, not human beings walking in the power of the Holy Spirit human beings walking in the maturity of the Holy Spirit instead sucking on the bottle. You know, does this mean they're not saved? No, it doesn't mean they're not saved. It means they're still sucking on the bottle. They're, they're still at, at the mercy of their emotions, which is a bad place to be in. The writer to the Hebrews even says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant, All right? Paul used the expression, you're not able to receive it. You know, you haven't, you don't have teeth. That's the problem. Babies don't have teeth. You can't feed babies solid food because they don't have the teeth to digest it. Well, the writer to the Hebrews takes a little bit different tack. He says, you, you're, you're drinking milk and you are not accustomed. And that I looked up that Greek word. It means you're inexperienced. You're inexperienced in the word of righteousness. If you're going to walk in the word, then it requires experience. That's how you grow. 
If you refuse the experiences, which often aren't pleasant, then you remain an infant. You never develop your teeth. And here's what's interesting. We look at what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and we look what the writer of the Hebrews wrote, even to the Hebrews. Neither one of these apostles expects their audiences to continue in milk. In the same way that the Hebrews are not expected to continue in milk, neither are the Corinthians, which pretty much were the wild bunch of the New Testament. <laughs> they had some antics going on at, at Corinth. Neither group was expected to continue in the milk of the word, that neither one was expected to just waller in salvation for the rest of their lives. They were expected to come to the mountain, grow some teeth, take the covenant, take the yoke upon you. Yeshua said it's easy, it's light. And if he's in, you know, the other one in the yoke with you, you're not doing that much work anyway. And so if we remember from Jewish tradition, of course, they believe that when the, the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, that even though there was a remnant from the nations who desired to enter into the covenant, it was only Israel who as a whole nation said, we will do, we will hear. Then in Acts chapter two, we can see, oh yeah, this desire of the remnant was satisfied. The proselytes from the nations had come up from Jerusalem to worship at the feast of Shavuot. They're saved, they are filled with the spirit, and then they go back to their, their own nations, speaking in their own tongues and sharing the good news. These people were never expected to continue in milk. It's significant that this transformation among the nations began in Acts chapter 2 at a celebration of Shavuot. There's an element of maturity there. It's, the, it's, it, it's where you turn over this new leaf, where you truly begin walking in your salvation. And in fact, as you're counting between first fruits. And Shavuot, the first fruits of the barley at Passover and Shavuot, you count each day. You count seven sevens, seven weeks, and then on the 50th day, you're going to celebrate Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Each day that you count 50 times, you're going to pray Psalm 67. And listen how many times it mentions the peoples. It says, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce, and the people are the produce in the context. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. We'll see this Shavuot experience was coming to the mountain, taking the yoke of Torah upon you, entering into the covenant. It also celebrates the first fruits of the wheat. So the earth has yielded its produce. At, in Acts chapter 2, the earth yielded its people. And so these people, even though they might be you know, newly saved in terms of recognizing Yeshua, clearly the proselytes were not new to the Torah, or they wouldn't have been there to begin with. I mean, it was very expensive and dangerous to make trips like that in that day and time. So they, they're familiar with the Torah. Now they understand the Torah through the lens of Yeshua and Yeshua through the lens of the Torah. This is a yielding of produce. This is the first fruits of the wheat, the fine stuff. This is not just Passover where you know, you're, you're walking in the milk. Now you're ready for the grown-up stuff. And so that's, that's how you pray between Passover and Shavuot. So let's take a quick look again here at Genesis 49, 8 through 12. 
And this is the blessing on Judah. It says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp, a cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. See, there's the peoples again. We saw the peoples in Acts chapter 2 relative to Shabuot in the covenant. And we're going to see it again. But it goes on. It says, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. All right, we have good news here. Judah is not a baby. Judah has teeth. It says his teeth are white from milk. He's had that Passover experience. He's been delivered from the realm of death. And then we'll come back to the three types of lion. But in that second part, it says he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Sometimes that's translated a little bit differently, where it talks about him riding in on the a donkey and the foal of a donkey. In other words, a donkey and its mom. Well, you need both parts to understand the work of Messiah and his two comings. And it's embedded right here in this prophecy. He ties his foal to the vine. The foal is a colt. It's a young, young donkey. It's a nursing donkey. A foal is a nursing donkey. He ties it to the vine. Well, the vine represents something mature. The vine represents, well, it doesn't represent, but it's associated with the Feast of Sukkot. When you bring from your wine vat, you bring the first fruits from your wine vat. The wine, the grapes will be ripe by the Feast of Sukkot. No matter where you are in the, in the land of Israel, they'll be ripe by Sukkot because, again, the vineyards will start ripening around the time of Shavuot and continue ripening until Sukkot. Depends upon where it is, elevation, heat, all that good stuff. So the young donkey is going to be tied to the vine, to the mature. In other words, there is a continuing cycle here. You're, you're not going to disconnect the young from the mature. This cycle should continue because he goes on and he says his donkey's colt to the choice vine. All right. The donkey would be the, the dam, the, the mother, the mature one who's nursing. And see, as, as we look back up into the three types of lions, we can see that pattern right there. The lioness, he starts with a cub and then ends up with a lioness. What does the lioness do? She gives birth to cubs and she nurses the cubs. Nursing the cubs ties that whole concept back around to the young and a new crop of young. It keeps taking you from Passover, Sukkot, Sukkot, back to Passover, Passover to Sukkot, to Sukkot, back to Passover. It's the cycle of life. And so the mare to the choice vine. See, a foal goes to the vine. A foal is not developed yet. It's inexperienced in reference to the word is the way that it was put. Fleshly. What does a foal do? They'll fight you. They won't listen. <laughs> you have to break them to lead. Uh, you have to break them to bear a burden. And it's not like literally breaking that, but you have to train them. They have to be disciplined. They have to learn to heed. And that's not without significant problems sometimes. Depends on how stubborn the, the donkey is. But notice the contrast. The donkey's cult to the choice vine. Well, remember that the donkey is the mare. 
It's the dam. It's the, the mature one who nurses the colt. And you can see the growth process, the donkey's colt to the choice vine, vine, choice vine. It's showing you the growth, the maturity of both the donkey and the vine. It says he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes, right? There's a equivalent expression there. It's very interesting. He keeps bringing up the wine, the blood of grapes, and his eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. So the wine, again, is associated with the feast of Sukkot. You know, you talk even about the grapes of wrath. Those are going to start being stomped at, at Sukkot, at some future Sukkot. The wrath of the lamb, Sukkot. The blood of grapes, Sukkot. The wine, Sukkot. The vine, Sukkot. Nevertheless, his teeth are white from milk. And so because he grew teeth from the milk, because he can digest the word, he can handle the word, then we see this maturity, which helps us to, to deconstruct here what's happening with the three types of lions. So you've got milk growing to solid food. The first fruits of the barley at Passover, these are your first principles. What do you call them? The, the, the oracles of God, the, the elementary things. You learn that. That's represented by Passover. Milk, you start growing your teeth. That's the cub. Then you go to maturity. You go to Shavuot, you go to the mountain, and now you're a grown-up, and you say, we will do and we will hear. We will keep the commandments. You're like that mature lion, the big guy. Well, what's, I don't know if you want to say even better, but just for the sake of example, what's even better than just a mature lion? A lioness. Because the lioness, the third one mentioned, if we see her as representative of Sukkot, then we see not only a mature lion, a mature lioness who can now give birth to more cubs, nurse more cubs, and bring more cubs to maturity, which ties you all the way back to Passover. Cub, lion, lioness. Right? And, and that makes sense if we go back here and look at how he used, he ties his bolt to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. It's showing you the maturity between the colt at the vine, the maturity of the donkey's colt to the choice vine. It's showing you the maturity and using the, the female, using the, the nursing mother to show you the completion of this process. All right. And then there's another insight that we had last week, and it has to do with how the, the cub is called. The cub is the gur arie, gur arie, and it shares the same root as ger, the stranger, the sojourner. When the Torah speaks of a stranger in Israel, it's kind of beyond the imagination that a stranger would be there just hanging out. There's way too many rules and regulations for an Israelite compared to the nations for them to just be hanging out. They're there for a reason, just like those proselytes in Acts chapter 2, just like Cornelius. These are people who are moving into the covenant. Now, they're, they're not completely in there yet. They're not completely mature. They're, they're catching those first principles. This is the Gur Aryeh. It's a nursing cub, this newcomer to the covenant. And what is this newcomer to the covenant supposed to do? According to Paul, according to the writer to the Hebrews, he's not supposed to stay a Gur. He's not supposed to stay a stranger to the covenant. He's supposed to come to the mountain. He's supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that he can fully engage with the rest of the tribes of Israel. So that eventually one day 
he can become the teacher. He can become the lioness. He can become the, the one that's nursing others on the milk of the word. And so with Sukkot, you know, a couple of the products we look at is wine, because you bring from your wine vat. And of course, it's really early in the year for olive oil. If you're talking about the new olive oil, because the fruits are just ripening at Sukkot. If you factor in processing time, you may not get those first fruits in there until the following Passover. It's, it's a kind of involved thing. But the olive oil will start to come in. The first fruits of the olive oil will come in at Sukkot. So it's without beginning and without end in terms of these cycles. And so what might be milk to someone else could be solid food to you. And that's why we go in these, these cycles. What might be super easy to you, you, I mean, you might have studied the Torah for 20, 30 years all your life. You might have been doing the feasts all your life. You might speak Hebrew. You might read Hebrew. And so what for you seems super easy to somebody else might just be more than they can swallow. They may not have the teeth for that yet. It doesn't mean that you can't grow again next year. It doesn't mean that you know all things and there's nothing to be added. You'll add some milk next year, something that will be a little difficult for you to grow in, that'll cause you to grow some new teeth in order to start biting into it and taking that next level of growth. So we should never be proud if we think we've grown to solid food, because the, the, the millisecond we become proud that we can eat solid food, he'll take us back to the word and show us we know nothing, nothing. How many times did Yeshua take the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees to school and showed them they knew nothing? Nobody knows anything. This Torah, it's the depth of it, I don't know that we'll ever get to the end of it. I think because it, it comes from spiritual realms, I just think that we're, we're never going to grow weary of it, that there, this growth process, it's super important. When we look at the wine, the olive fruits, and even the milk and the honey aspect of it, that I think we'll always be going through those cycles of growth, and they'll be very pleasant because we'll cease to fear them. That's the problem with human beings. We're afraid of what we don't know, and we're afraid of feeling incompetent. Once we get over ourselves, once we get over that feeling of, well, I don't know if I want to do that because I don't know much about it. I like to feel like the expert. I like people to look at me like I know what I'm doing. Well, see, you have to get over that because none of us know what we're doing. We have a few things that we become competent at, and he says, okay, you had a good time there. Now I'm going to take you to something more difficult. And you can see people who just camped out at only the things, the little things they knew, but they never grew. And he says, I want you to have a new crop every year. I want you to go through the cycle every single year. And you can see that the way these seven spirits of Adonai work, they're one Holy Spirit, but they never cease flowing. Never. As long as the spirit flows from beneath the throne, the heavenly throne, and it flows down into the garden, those rivers of Eden never stopped flowing. And Yeshua identified himself as those rivers of Eden. He stood up at Sukkot and said, come to me and drink, because that flow of the spirit will never stop flowing. It never will. It'll just keep going and going. That's the same thing we're looking for for this continual growth, never really reaching the end. Remember at Sukkot, you 
re-roll the Torah scroll because you're going to start reading all over again. And you're going to have that new level of growth. With the power of the Holy Spirit, it will never be a dead letter to you. It will always be alive. And it will always continue in its cycles, just like the tree of life. Right? So we want this Passover milk to grow to the solid Sukkot banquet food. When you go into the Sukkot at Sukkot, you might have some ice cream, but it's not primarily for milk. You're supposed to have the good stuff. You have the best fish. You have the best beef. You have the best chicken. You have the best vegetables. You have the good stuff. You have the wine. You have the olive oil. These things are not for children, you know, unless you're using it for medicine or something. I guess you could then. Why? Because inheritance is for the mature. We want to be mature in our faith so that we can inherit the kingdom. If we're just babies, then he cannot allow you to inherit until you grow up. Paul used that example of the tutor. You'll have to be educated. You'll have to grow into your inheritance before dad turns you loose in the kingdom. Until then, you'll be under somebody's supervision. Well, I'll be under Yeshua's supervision, but we're supposed to rule and reign. We're not supposed to go into the kingdom without any skills whatsoever because we refuse to grow up. And this picture is of vineyards. And you'll notice that the vineyards are in straight rows, pretty much. I mean, they're on a hill, but they're in straight rows. If you'll remember Ezekiel's description of the tribal allotments of Israel, they're in straight rows. They're very different from the time of Joshua, where they were scattered around. Israel is the vineyard. How do we know that? It says, you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. That's Psalm 88. And But then if we go to Psalm 128, 1 through 4, we can see how Ezekiel's vision of Israel is a more mature vision as a vineyard, not scattered here, there, and everywhere, as a vineyard. It says, how blessed Ashrei, here Asher's name in there, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, Yireh, fears, reverences the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, Ashrei, and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, and your children like olive plants or slips, young slips around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So the blessings that the Ashrei, Asher, blessings are associated with a people who fear Adonai. And remember, the reverence of Adonai, the fear of the Adonai, it's the seventh spirit. So it's kind of like Shabbat. It represents the whole week. Well, the reverence of Adonai represents all the spirits, just the way we call it the Holy Spirit, meaning everything. If we say the reverence of Adonai, it would include everything that went before it. And if you'll remember, you can see how the reverence of Adonai is the beginning of all wisdom. It's the whole thing. Reverence gives you wisdom. Reverence and wisdom give you knowledge, give you understanding, give you counsel. They're, they're contained within that. You get the whole package if you have the reverence of Adonai, because if you have his reverence, you'll never stop learning. But it, it compares it to your wife. She'll be like a fruitful vine within your house. Okay. If Israel is the vineyard in the house, the, you know, the temple would be representative of the house. But then what does the, the wife do? She has children. 
like olive slips, like the little bitty plants. And remember at Sukkot, what do you get? You get the early fruits. What do you get? You get the lioness ready to bear cubs. You get the donkey's mama uh, who's going to have a foal, but she's going to bring it to maturity so that she can tie it to the choice vine. Can you see the, the growth process that's taking place here? And so when we're talking about the bride of Messiah, she needs to be a wife. I know, guys, you're, you don't like to be called <laughs> the wife, but just roll with it here for a second, because we have to go with the lion, all right? If, if ladies have to deal with being a lion, then you can deal with the lioness here for a sec. The wife represents the ability, just like uh, to the Thessalonians, Paul says, remember, we were gentle among you as a nurse cherishes her children. You reach a stage in your growth where you can nurse other people in the word. This is the, the condition of Israel in the millennium. As Ezekiel saw it, it was in vineyard rows. She's become a fruitful vine. She's bearing children. And now she's able to nurture children. She can send the word out from Jerusalem. She can send the Torah out into the rest of the nations. She's able to do that. So that's that's a one explanation of why the tribal allotments are a little bit different as Ezekiel sees them as to how the, the lots were drawn in the time of uh, Joshua. Okay. But remember, again, even though each tribe, because we're dealing with Judah and Asher or Yehuda and Asher right now, even though there's 12 sets of blessings, the understanding is every single one of these 12 sons had some measure of every blessing, but each son was characterized by specific ones, just like uh, you had kings from the northern tribes after the, the northern kingdom split off from Judah. Benjamin provided the first king, but the scepter, you know, the, the, the right to rule and reign was going to rest upon Yehuda just like the right to the priesthood, those priests had to come from the, the tribe of Levi. Again, see them like the, the Holy Spirit, even though it's one Holy Spirit, it's different manifestations. You've got 12 tribes, but they're all full of the blessings. Now, with the tribe of Asher, we have blessings of rich food, oil, which does connect us to Shavuot, because it is said, you know, his lechem, his bread, will be rich. Well, at Shavuot, you bring the two loaves of rich bread. But because the, the oil and the wheat, the first fruits, that's when you bring it all in. From the wine vat, the threshing floor, the flock, the herd, fruit of the ground, the fruit of the tree. All of that's at the Feast of Ingathering Sukkot. So it, it grows from Shavuot to Sukkot. The blessing can grow of the rich food of the oil into Sukkot. And that's what it says, from Asher, his bread, his lechem is rich, shmena, shmena is oil, and he will provide kingly delicacies. And uh, so we, we've got this abundance of fine wheat and olive oil that were characteristic of the tribal allotment of Asher. The fullness of that is going to be due at Sukkot. Right? You've got first fruits of the barley at Passover. You've got first fruits of the wheat at Shavuot. 
but the maturity is expected at Sukkot. Eating rich foods is a commandment of Sukkot and drinks. Asher's blessing is associated with the blessing of beautiful and righteous daughters. And I'm going to explain that. And I think this is where Asher we might particularly see as symbolizing the lioness and the blessing on Judah. Because remember, the lioness helps you to envision the mature bride, not a bridesmaid, not a flower girl, (laughs) not a ring bearer. No, a mature bride. And again, it goes back to Shavuot. Peter was telling the people in Acts chapter 2 that something wonderful was happening. That just like the prophet Yoel spoke about, that the spirit will be poured out on your sons and your daughters, your male and your female servants. Yeshua is lifting up the daughters as part of restoration. And there's clues to this restoration. They're a little harder to find, but we can find them. In fact, um, workbook three, I have a whole list basically of matching things where you think, well, this is for a male, but then you're strolling through there and all of a sudden you see it embodied in a female. One of the first things we have here without going all the way back to the garden is going to be Genesis 12, 15, and 16, the blessing on Sarah. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Well, this is almost identical to what was said to Abraham in Genesis 17, 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. So it's very, I mean, it's not identical, but it's definitely matching. What about the women? We, we always hear about the men coming back to repair Jerusalem and repair its walls and repair the temple. Well, you could read right over this and miss it. Nehemiah 3.12, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hmm. Well, I don't know exactly what they were doing, but they were included, which is really odd. Can women help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Absolutely. That's what we're doing right now by receiving the word. We're making repairs in the breaches. Listen to this, what David says when his soldiers were upset that some of the other soldiers who stayed back and watched the baggage wanted to share in the loot. And he thought they thought, well, they don't deserve that. They didn't go all the way. Here's what David says to them. Who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. We have different jobs. He says, I don't care if if you, you know, stuck your sword through the last enemy, the person who guarded your baggage, this is the person who is going to share with you. It's equally important. Well, our psalm this week was Psalm 68. And in fact, if you go back and you compare the two contexts, you'll pick up more stuff than just these things I'm pointing out in terms of parallel. But here's what Psalm 68 says. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Some translations will say army 
The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great army. Kings of armies flee, they flee. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. So ladies, it doesn't matter whether you're out proclaiming the good news or if you're taking care of your children at home, you get paid the same. It's equally important. Same thing that King David said to his soldiers. It's, it's one thing. We are one army, no matter what our job is. So we've got this clue to the mature oil of Sukkot and Asher's blessing. And that blessing of an Asher pertains particularly to daughters. The, the blessing is this. Of Asher, he said, more blessed than sons. More blessed than sons. Kind of odd wording, isn't it? Is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers, and may he dip his foot in oil. Your locks will be iron and bronze, and according to your days, so will your leisurely walk be. Right? This it sounds a little cryptic, but we can unpack a lot more of that next week. But if you look at Asher's placement in this particular context, he's moved all the way to the end. He's out of place. Some of the others are too, but Asher is definitely out of place down there. And what does it connect to? It connects down to these glorious prophecies of Adonai ruling and reigning and riding in the heavens. It's it's a glorious linking right there. So we've got Passover, and this is the beginning. This is wisdom. And these oil-rich Asher, you know, members of the tribe of Asher, what they were known for in biblical times was wise women. I don't know if you remember the wise woman of Tekoa. And next week, we'll talk about the two Tekoas. So we can, you know, there might be something a little confusing there. But the wise woman of Tekoa, she was sought out because the women of Asher were known, not just for being beautiful, not just sought after by kings and priests, for their beauty, but also for their wisdom. And so that really connects us with the menorah, where, you know, talking about putting the oil in the menorah. The women of Asher are, are great symbolically of helping us understand the blessing from sons, the blessing from sons. It's the more spiritual aspect. There's going to be a, a revelation of greater glory that has been suppressed since the beast caused the Fall from the garden. The serpent was the most cunning beast of the field. He caused Adam and Eve to fall out of the garden. And since then, we've really only known a world dedicated to the appreciation of physical beauty, physical pleasure, physical strength. We we glorify strength. But in the garden, it was spiritual strength that was as important as the physical strength. And this is going to be a time when Asher's daughters are going to thrive in the kingdom, because the spiritual aspect will once again be appreciated. And because it's not easily seen, often we discount it. It's only with spiritual eyes that we can see the strength of the spirit. Now, here's the blessing on Asher. May Asher be blessed. And this is a different translation. So I can show you why the the rabbis say this is a blessing on daughters. May Asher be blessed with sons, mibanim. Mibanim, that means from sons. Asher will be blessed from sons. He will be pleasing to his brothers. Immerse his foot in oil. Your locks are iron and copper, and the days of your old age will be like the days of your youth. Old age is important in here. Next week, we're going to look at Hannah, who was 84 years old when she met Yeshua. And what was she doing? Serving day and night in the temple. And so 
as the translator Uncolos pointed out, the understanding of the first century when Yeshua lived is that the blessing of Asher will be from the blessings of the sons, from the blessings of the sons. In other words, it will be a blessing on the daughters. They say Asher will be able to promote ideals of the Torah to his brothers, but in it, they see a blessing of daughters. And so next week, when we look at Hannah, we will see how this blessing from sons is fulfilled. Because which son is going to be brought to Hannah in the temple? Yeshua. Yeshua. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.